0: Thank you so much for joining us today. We're always encouraged to know God is working through New Beginnings to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please let us know. Send us an email at newbeginningsnj.org. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all here today, especially with the topic that we're covering um, we in the second part of the series that we started last week four relational game changers How many to you know that relationships can be challenging? Let me see your hands if you know that relationships can be challenging um, How many of you don't care that relationships are challenging? And relationships can be a tremendous blessing. Yes Or they can send you to the psychiatrist. Okay, and uh, we've all had experiences where relationships were very challenging And so whatever help we can get from uh, the Word of God, to help us when our relationships, a good thing, yes? Okay, but what's even better, and what we're experiencing so far in this relationship, and this is only part two yet, we've got two more weeks, is that we're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and his nature and his character demonstrated and shining through these relationships that we're talking about. If you weren't here last week, I, I really do hope that you will take serious the challenge of going home today, maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, And going on our website, go to the media page and go listen to last week's part one. We talked about a relationship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law that really um, really taught us the lesson of loyalty. And uh, how many of you think our relationship could use a little bit more loyalty in them? Let me see, see, real real, real strong. How many of you love to get stabbed in the back? Let's say it. (laughs) Amen. And we know that we live in a treacherous generation. We live in a generation where people will drop you at just, for no reason at all, uh, relationships that you may have had for years and years and years, you've invested in, they were invested in you, and then you turn around and it's like, boom, it's gone, it's over with, over a a slight little misunderstanding. How many of you think it shouldn't be that way? It should not be that way. We should be loyal in our relationships. Well, listen, today we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about a specific type of love. It's the love... Uh, that God places in our hearts f- for one another. Uh, we're not talking about love in a marriage relationship. We're not talking about any other, kind. Co- we're talking about covenant love that is a love between, uh, between a brother and another brother in the Lord, a sister, another sister in the Lord. In other words, love between individuals that are called into the family of God. How many believe that there's any place where we should expect to see pure, genuine unselfish love, it should be in our relationships. How many you agree? Okay, we'll get the rest of you on board before the end of the service. So we've been talking about consecration, consecrating ourselves unto the Lord. And honestly, we really can't say that our lives are consecrated unto the Lord if our relationships are not consecrated unto the Lord. Amen? You can't have a, you can't have a relationship in a worldly sense and then claim that you belong to God. If you belong to God, if he's living in you, his spirit lives in you, that that Holy Spirit, which by the way, Romans chapter five says that the love of God has been, ha- oh, I thought it said with an eyedropper. <laughs> the love of God has been just dropped a little, just, just the size of a pin drop in our hearts. Well, if you think, if you, if you think about some people, that's exactly how you live. But the truth is, it says in Romans chapter five that the love of God has been what? Shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the Holy Spirit came to live inside you, Guess what he brought with him? Love, because love, God is? Love. Let's say it again. For God is? Love. And so if God is love and his Holy Spirit is God, then when the Holy Spirit came into your life, what came into your life? The love of God. Right. See, we can't walk around and say, well, I can't love that person. She You don't understand. It's just greats on my personality. Oh, no, no, no. See, you made a mistake. You're trying to love that person with human love. And human love is always extremely limited. And human love is almost always selfish. I love you if you can do things for me. I will love you because I need something from you. Well, God's love is, I love you because you need me. You catching this? God loves us because he knows we need him. Because without him, we're done. We're lost. Amen? So today, we're going to talk about I believe, one of the most inspirational relationships in the Bible, in the Word of God, and that is the relationship between David and Jonathan. David, you know David's the shepherd boy, the young shepherd boy. He's the one who defeated Goliath. His father is a man named Jesse. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Remember Ruth and Boaz from last week? Okay. Well, their marriage produced a generation that eventually produced Jesse, Jesse, has eight sons. David is the youngest of those eight sons. Now, I, I think it's 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 interesting to note that the number eight in the Bible always symbolizes new beginnings. And you see, when David comes on the scene, his family experiences a new beginning, David experiences a new beginning in his life, the kingdom of Israel itself experiences a change. And we'll see that as we go through the message today. <clears throat> Jonathan is King Saul's son. So Jonathan is a prince over the kingdom. In other words, when Saul passes from the scene, it should be Jonathan that takes the throne next if you follow the succession. But we're gonna see how that plays out. David's story is intertwined with King Saul. King Saul is not, if you've, if you've read the Bible, and I hope that you do, and I hope you do on a regular basis, when you get to the part in the scriptures in the Old Testament when it starts to talk about Saul, you see an individual who needs help. Saul kind of starts out really good, but he goes bad fast and pretty much stays that way. When David comes on the scene, Saul has already been on the throne for many, many years. He's unfortunately established a track record of disobedience to God. So we pick up David's story at the end or kind of towards the end of Saul's story, all right? So in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, It gets so bad by this point that God says to Samuel, Samuel's a prophet over Israel. Samuel was the one that was used by God to install Saul as king, and he is known as the greatest prophet in all of the history of Israel. Powerful man. God says to Samuel, stop praying for Saul. I've rejected him. Now, let me ask you this question, because don't, we don't have time to go into the whole backstory with Saul, but let me just throw this out at you. How many know that God is patient? Yeah, how, how many of you experience yourself God's patience? How many know he's long-suffering? How many know, like, it's it just, he has patience after patience. He endures a lot. So let me just say this to you. When you get to the place where you got on God's last nerve... I mean, this is, we're not like talking like Saul didn't pay his tithes or Saul didn't pray. Saul has been determined throughout his life for whatever reason. If God says go left, he goes right. If God says stop, he goes. Just, just Saul's track record is horrible. And finally God goes, that's it, I'm done with this guy. When you, when you get to the point where God says to somebody, don't pray for them, that's bad. So it goes to show you what, what, what state that Saul was in. And so now David starts to come on the scene, he's a teenager, towards the end of Saul's reign, and it says for us here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, it's not talking about a trumpet, it's talking about like an animal horn that they would use as as a container, they would hollow it out and they would use to fill it specifically with oil. And so because he's a prophet, God says to Samuel, okay, fill that horn with oil and go to Bethlehem and go to the house of Jesse. He said, for I have chosen among his sons a king for myself. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house. Now let's set the scenario up here. Remember, if you've been here long enough or if you've been here for any amount of time, you will hear me say, Whenever you read the scriptures, put yourself on site. Put yourself in the story. Now, mind you, if, you know, I live in here in Brittown, Tom's River, wherever the surrounding area is. If somebody said, Samuel's coming to town, you'd have went, oh, okay. Well, we'll take him to lunch when he gets here. But when the people of Bethlehem heard that Samuel was coming to town, they went, oh, my God, Samuel's coming to town? Samuel, the prophet. Samuel... The one who God told to chop up the king of the Amalekites when Saul refused to execute this king. that had brought so much filth and degeneration into the land. God gave commands to Saul and said, Saul, I want you to attack Amalek, Amalek, a tribe of people, and wipe them out. Don't even leave a flea alive. Why? Because they had brought so much filth, so much degeneration, so much pagan worship into the land. God said that, said, wipe them out, and Saul does not. Another time when he's disobedient, and finally Samuel comes on the scene, and Samuel finds this king who should have been the first one executed. He's still alive. And, Sa- and, and Saul's trying to make excuses, you know, I'm just trying to please the people. And, and any time you try to please people, you get in trouble, okay? So long story short, Samuel takes his sword and chops this king to pieces in front of the people. When you got a reputation like that, and they say, this is the guy that's coming to our town? So so we, we, we read in the scriptures that when, when he gets to Bethlehem, all the people are going like, are, are you here for peace? I mean, are we okay? Do I need to go hide my kids? Because this man, is, he's got a reputation for being fierce. And he's like, out of the way, where's Jesse's house? It's right down there, right down the street, make a left and then turn right. And, and he gets to Jesse's house. Now, now, I'm telling you all this to give you a little glimpse to the backstory of David. And what the dynamic was in his family. Because then you'll understand later why David does some of the things he does. He gets there. Now, he's the youngest of eight children. All sons. So Jesse comes there. Excuse me. Samuel comes there. Jesse's there. He says, "Um, bring your children in. Bring your sons in. And so from the oldest all the way down, everyone that stood in front of Samuel, he hears on the inside, this isn't the one. Number one. Number two, number three, number four. He gets to number seven. And he's still just, God's not saying this is the one. And so so Samuel goes, you got any more? And Jesse goes, oh, yeah. There's the young kid. There's the youngest. He's out in the fields because he's with the sheep and he smells, and we keep him out there. Now, we laugh about that, but think about the message that's sent. They didn't even esteem David enough to bring him in the house when the prophet shows up. Because the father automatically thought, no, it can't be the smelly one. It must be the oldest because he's so tall and so handsome. It must be this one because he's so strong. And so. No, no. God looks at the heart, God doesn't look at the outside.
1: And we would learn
0: good from that lesson. Because many times we get ourselves involved in relationships because we look at the outside. He's so hot. She's a babe. <laughs> He's got a great job. She's got an awesome car. Or we get involved in a relationship. Like, yeah, you know, this is a good contact. This is a good connection I made here. You know, this, this, this could do stuff for us. Anytime you get involved in a relationship based on what you're going to get from someone, guess what? You are being set up. Know from the heart you have the whole, If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. And the Holy Spirit will show you who to get involved with, who not to get involved with. That doesn't, we're not talking about judgment here. But there are certain people that are included in God's plan for your life. And there are certain people that are not. And you would, you would do good to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit on the inside. Amen? Amen. So, David comes in and God says, that's the one. And Samuel doesn't need anybody's permission because he's Samuel the prophet. He'll cut you up if you get a mad. <laughs> he takes that horn of oil and just dumps it on David's head, and that's just symbolic of the Holy Spirit just coming upon you. So the Spirit of God comes upon David. The anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit comes upon David. Now, it's interesting to note. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's going to be at least 15 years before he steps into being king. Some of us hear from God, we start getting a tug in our heart, and we think, bam, it's going to happen tomorrow. God's called me to the ministry. I'm going to have a 1,000 people by Tuesday morning. (laughs) Does not work that way. Does not work that way. First comes the pronouncement. Then comes the appointment. And then comes the anointing. Now, watch this now. Watch this now. The years that you spend between the time of the pronouncement and the time of the anointing, is going to determine what you're going to accomplish. And so don't get disturbed when an attack comes right after the revelation of what God's plan is for your life. Because if you study David's life, one day he's being anointed with oil to be king of Israel. Next chapter, Goliath shows up on the scene. Okay? Now, What's the significance of that? There is something about when God places his hand on somebody's life that attracts the activity of the enemy. Amen. And so many people get, you know, oh, Pastor, I don't understand. You know, I just got this, this hunger and thirst to know more of God. And as soon as I started operating that way, as soon as I started coming to church, as soon as I started reading my Bible, it's like all hell's broken loose. Yeah, welcome to the club. That's how it works. Jesus gets baptized, what happens next? He's in the wilderness and the devil shows up to tempt him three times. Moses, the deliverer of Israel. What happens when he's born on the scene? Pharaoh gives an order for all the Jewish babies to be drowned. Jesus is born, what happens? Crazy King Herod sends his soldiers to wipe out all the babies in and around Bethlehem two years and younger. Why? Because the devil knows this. If he can kill it while it's young, he won't have to deal with it when it's full-blown. You listening? It's a principle, just the way it is. It's just the way it operates in the kingdom. But if you stick with God and you trust it, he'll bring you through every single time. Now watch this now. We have a tendency to think about our giants. You know, not say, Pastor, I got giants in my life. Yeah, so big deal. Go get some stones, just like David did. Yeah, but you don't understand this attack is bad. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. But guess what? Would anybody have ever heard about David if it wasn't for Goliath? Goliath is David's path to the throne. No Goliath, no fame. Goliath defined David. From the moment that Goliath fell and David went and cut his head off, everybody in Israel knew who David was. Nobody knew who David was 10 minutes before. Do not be afraid of the battles that come against you. Don't be afraid of the enemies that rise up. Don't be afraid of the lies of the devil. He would not be paying attention to you if there wasn't something on the inside that threatens him. Are you listening to me? Learn that lesson and learn it good. Don't worry when the giants show up. Don't worry when the lies begin. Just follow God. Trust him. He's got your feet on a path of greatness. Amen? Amen. So, after David's victory over Goliath, Saul, the king, Jonathan's father, takes David into his household and begins to treat him like family, okay? Now, what ends up happening is that David and Jonathan, Saul's son, they just, they just form a bond between them, a bond of admiration. Maybe they saw similarities in each other. Maybe they just, just realized, you know, the other thing too, just think of it this way. David is raised in a house where his brothers just have no use for him. You saw what I told you. Samuel comes to town. They don't even get David out of the field. So his father shows no esteem. His brother shows no esteem. Obviously, there's a hole there. And so now, he's put in this relationship that God has put together. And this bond of love between these guys, is, you'll see, is gonna carry for generations that kind of brotherly love, that kind of love that should happen between us and the church. That, that love that was instigated by God and it's a pure love. It's not a love that's looking for something. It's a love that's looking to bring something. And that's the way we should. We should never go into a relationship, especially in church. We should never form a relationship. But, you know, Years and years ago, way before I was born again, because uh, I was in business here in town, people come and say, you know, you should join this organization, join that organization, because you, know, you can make a lot of contacts there, and those people do a lot for you. There's only one problem with that kind of thing. Everybody's looking for the same thing in those meetings. Every time you go there, all they want to do is get drunk and hang around the bar and then make deals. Sooner or later, you're going to run out of stuff to give them, and when you run out of stuff to give them, what happens? The relationship is done. But in the church, in the kingdom, in the family of God, we should constantly be looking for how can we bless somebody else? Yes or no? How can we bless? When you come to church, don't come to church primarily, got to get there because I just need to feel good. I got to get there. I need something. I got to get there. I got to hear from God. No. No. Come with the attitude of, Lord, what are you sending me with today? Lead me to somebody in the lobby, after by the, by the cafe. Lead me to somebody that I can deposit something in, that I can show your love, that I can show your care. Even if it's a handshake, a hug, a smile, anything. Hey, let's have a cup of coffee, something like this. Do you know how valuable that is? Do you know what that do you know what that does to the person that walks through those doors? that genuinely has not yet met God, has not yet met the Lord Jesus Christ, and is coming here just so beat down, just like some of us did when we came. Just just desperate to hear some kindness. Just desperate to have some hope. Do you know what it feels like when you realize that God used you to maybe pull somebody back from the edge? That's the kind of love we're talking about. So, 1 Samuel chapter, whatever that is. Is that 16, 17, 18? Thank you. Verse 1. Now when they had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, remember Saul brought David into the house, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. From that point on, David becomes part of Saul's family. uh, and Eventually becomes Saul's uh, son-in-law. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Now, here's where it gets serious, and here's where I want you to really pay attention, because this is where this friendship is going to show us some great characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. Verse four, uh, excuse me, verse three, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. This bond is so strong. They're they're closer than brothers. They just just admire each other. They're going to uphold each other. They're going to be there for each other. And so look, verse four. Now, Jonathan, who's Jonathan again? Jonathan is what? The prince of Israel, the prince of the kingdom. He's the son of the king. And look what Jonathan does. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Watch this now. With his armor, even to his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, let me ask you this question. This is the prince, right? Yes? Second in command of the kingdom, yes? Yes? Do you think he's got a shabby robe? No. Do you think he has faulty weapons? No. This is he's got the best. That robe signifies his position in the kingdom. Those weapons, he would have had the best. Why? Because he represents the kingdom. And what does he do? Takes that robe, gives it to David. Takes his weapons, his armor, everything that can protect him. And what does he do? He gives it to David. They said, now look what happens here. Verse five, so David went out, went, went out wherever Saul sent him. He's got all the confidence of the king now and behaved wisely. In other words, he was very smart with the way he handled things. And Saul set him over the men of war. This is, he, he's, at this point, I don't even, he's 20 years old yet. And yet Saul is setting him over units of his soldiers. And he's winning. And look at this. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Why? Let me explain to you why. That little ceremony that we just saw take place—the robe exchange, the the gift of the weapons and the armor and the, sh- the shield and the sword—they weren't just good acts. They weren't just kind. They sent a message of covenant. When Jonathan gave his robe to David, it was as good as, as Jonathan saying, here is my equal. When you see him, you respect him as if it was me. When he gave him his weapons, he was sending the message, I trust this man, and I am, he is under my protection, and he never has to fear anyone coming against him, not because of who he is, but because of whose he is. Now, let me just answer this, this question. Are you familiar with any of this covenant stuff? Because you're not. You're going to miss out on this. And truthfully, you need to study the concept of covenant because until you know what covenant means, you have never read the Bible yet. But once you understand what covenant is in, ancient, in the ancient world, you then begin to read the Bible completely different and stuff jumps out at you like, oh, wow, that's covenant, that's covenant, that's covenant, that's covenant. When you came into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know what happened? He took your filthy garments and he gave you his robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Why does a bride adorn herself with jewels? Why does a bridegroom wear a separate outfit at the wedding so you can identify? That's the bride. That's the groom. These are the special ones. These are now ready to come into a relationship together, and the two shall become one. Are you catching this? Okay. Jesus is recorded for us in Matthew 28. Some of the last things he said before he returned to heaven was this: "All authorities be given unto me. There, you go therefore and make disciples of all nations." What was he saying? The authority that I have on my life, I now give to you. Luke chapter 10, verse 19, I believe it is. Yep. Behold, I give you... This is Jesus to the disciples now. Remember, remember, remember what Jonathan did with David. Remember what happened. Jesus says, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions upon all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. What did he give us? His weapons. He gave us his authority. You know what else? Before he leaves, he says to them in my name. You're going to cast out devils. You're going to lay hands on the sick and they're going to recover. You're going to speak with other tongues. In my name. What did he give us? What weapon? The power of his name. And you and I know that when we're faced with sickness or disease, or we're faced with anything that comes from from the kingdom of darkness. What do you need to pull out? That weapon The name of Jesus. And what do you do? Oh, no, no, no. In the name of Jesus, you stop it now. He's drawn us into covenant with himself. We carry his robe. We have his weapons at our disposal. We have authority over the evil one, over his power. But the devil still has power. Yeah, you're right. But we have authority over his power. The guy who sits in, in, in a silo underground with a nuclear missile has power, all he's got to do is push that button. But you know what? There's somebody in the White House that has authority over that power. Are you seeing this? That's who you and I are. He's been, he gave us authority over the powers of darkness. Now, there's something else that if you're familiar with covenant in the Bible, and if you're familiar historically, what would happen next between Jonathan and David is that they would, they would place a mark in their bodies, that would speak to everyone that they were in covenant with one another. And typically what would happen is that they would make a cut in the wrist, and there's a reason for that, I'll explain it to you. And they would take ashes from a fire and rub that into that wound and not, not, not allow it to, to heal without that, allow it to heal over so that it would cause a scar and actually a tattoo because the ashes would, would stain the skin. And so when, when, And that's why in our common everyday world today, when we, when we meet somebody, what do we do? We extend our hand. Well, see, today it's not a big deal, but back then when everybody had weapons, you want to be extended an open hand. But when that hand is extended, you now have the opportunity to look at that person's wrist and you would know immediately, oh, I better not mess with this one because he belongs to Jonathan. Are you catching this? Well, guess what? There is somebody in heaven right now that bears the marks of the covenant. In his rest and for all of eternity, every one of us that get there we will have no mistake at all. We will see him, and he still carries that mark of the covenant that he made with us. It's in his wrist. It's in his feet. It's in his side. No one can ever deny who that Jesus is. Are you listening to me? Amazing, amazing stuff. So, covenant love now requires Jonathan and David to love each other as brothers. They would show who they belong to. From this point forward now, if you study David's life, Jonathan is protecting David. David is fleeing for his life continuously because Jonathan's father is now determined to kill David. Jonathan is the one who's warning David time after time, my father's coming after you. My father's coming after you. Finally, finally. Jonathan has to send David off because he knows his father is determined and has put a plot together to kill David. And so they they, they get together, they meet, and Jonathan reveals to David this plan. And he says, you got to go. You have to leave. They still loved each other like brothers. They still had that bond there. But Jonathan knew, if I really love him, I'm going to send him away so that his life is preserved. Now now watch this now. Jonathan's been watching this. Jonathan's not stupid. He realizes that his father's just out there. And so he knows that someday David's gonna be king. He knows that the throne is not gonna come to him. Even though he's a rightful heir, he chooses to protect David. And so they get together, he meets with David, but he says this to him, before we part, I want you to promise me that the bond that exists between us, the promises that we made to one another, don't just apply to you and I. I want you to promise me that you're going to protect my sons and you're going to protect my grandchildren, even to the generations in the future. And so they make this promise. They, they, they renew the covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord, while I still live, Jonathan speaking, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies. In other words, when all your enemies are gone, don't stop showing kindness to my family. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So what does this mean? David promises to show the same love that he has towards Jonathan To Jonathan's sons and Jonathan's grandchildren and to the future generations. And so, then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, speaking of David, and Jonathan went back into the city. Let me ask you this question. What would the people outside these walls that have never experienced Jesus yet, wouldn't know God if he showed up in a red tuxedo, have never opened up the Bible? But let me ask you this question. If they saw this kind of love between Christians, what would that speak to them? What would that say to them? If they found out that you not only honored and respected me, but you also honor and respect my children, my grandchildren, and the generations in the future, and people are starved for love out there. People are starved for loyalty out there. People are starved for genuine relationships. If they saw that kind of conduct between us, what do you think would happen with that? We wouldn't be able to build a church big enough to house the people because that speaks loud to individuals. Are you listening to me? Listen, church. We need to bring this kind of love into our relationships. We need to bring this kind of love because this kind of covenant love, and watch this now, it's more based on love from God than it's based on love between people. Because you keep hearing this phrase, that I may show the kindness of the Lord to so and so. It's not your your kindness, it's not my kindness, it's his kindness. But guess what, like we said before, his love has been shed abroad abundantly in your heart. All you have to do is tap into that. Put yourself aside, so I'm gonna love this person the way God would love this person. I'm gonna love this person the way God has loved me. My God, what a powerful force that would be. So, many years later, after Jonathan and David had been away from each other for decades, Jonathan is killed in the same battle with his father. Saul and him and another brother are killed in a battle with the Philistines. Peace eventually comes to the kingdom. David is crowned king. Time goes by. The kingdom is secure. And David is sitting on his throne one day and starts to think about Jonathan. And he says this. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Verse 42. I'm sorry, at the wrong scripture there. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? What's he saying? Is there anybody left? I know Saul's dead. I know Jonathan is dead. Their brothers are dead. Is there anybody left that I so that I can fulfill this promise? that I made to Jonathan decades ago. Verse two. And there was a servant of the house of Saul. Somebody who used to serve in Saul's palace is now serving David, whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show, watch this now, the kindness of God Hey, listen, if, if there's two kinds of kindness I, I can tap into, there's your kindness and then there's God's kindness, hold on to your kindness. Give me God's kindness. Amen? So he says, is there anybody left in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who was lame in his feet. Remember that one. Remember that phrase, who was lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Emiel, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, unless you've studied this out, he might as well have said, he's in Jersey City. Or he's in Hoboken, or he's in Camden. He, it's just, but look, when he said, when Ziba said Lodabar, the king immediately recognized, oh, wow. That would be the equivalent of you and I say. Where is so-and-so? Oh, wow, he's out in the sticks. He's in the boonies. Lodabar was geographically the furthest part in the kingdom that a person could get from the throne. It's way on the other side of the kingdom. And the reputation was this. You only go to Lodabar when you're hiding out. You only go to Lodabar when you are criminal or when you are in debt in other words, you know how, and please don't anybody take this the wrong way. You know how everybody, when, they get, when everybody gets in debt, and I've been there too, anybody who's in bankruptcy, we the first, hey, we're going to move to Florida. <laughs> like there's some magical kingdom in Florida that as soon as you get there, none of your debts follow you, it's a fresh start, all this other stuff. And the, the thing is, and how many of you know people a few years later, where are they? Back in New Jersey, right? So Lodabar carries that type of reputation. He's in Lodabar. And there's a reason he went to Lodabar. His name is Mephibosheth. There's a mouthful right there. Now, Mephibosheth was five years old when Saul and his father Jonathan were killed. He has a nurse that takes care of him. She hears Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, and the first thing the nurse thinks is, that's it, we're dead, all of us are dead. The soldiers, either the Philistines are gonna come and destroy us, or David is gonna take advantage of of this vacuum of power, and he's going to send his man to kill everybody here, and then he's going to take the throne. Why? Because that's what you did back then. When one king was defeated and another king came in to take the throne, the king that was coming to take the throne would hunt down every male member of the previous family and kill them all down to the third generation so they don't have to ever worry that someday one of these people from that family are going to come back and try to claim the throne again. So what does the nurse do? She snatches up this little five-year-old and in her haste to run, she drops him and breaks both his legs and from that point forward, little Mephibosheth is crippled. They take him. They bring him to Lodabar. He spends the rest of his life up until this point in Lodabar and what's he hearing? You better stay here. But I want to go back to Jerusalem. No, you better stay here. Because if David finds out where you are, he's going to kill you. Because David was horrible to our family. Nobody's remembering what David promised to Jonathan. All this young man has heard for decades is if David ever gets a hold of you, he's going to kill you. He's probably going to chop your head off, and you're going to be dead. So you better hide out. He's crippled. God only knows how many days he spent laying in bed, laying on a cot, laying on something. Fearful. Every time horses might have approached his area, he must have thought to himself, This is it. This is I'm dead. David has sent his soldiers. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, up from Lodabar. The day came when the horses arrived. The day came when the soldiers arrived. And God only knows how he must have been trembling. When they carried him out of that tent, put him on a horse, bring him back to Jerusalem. He's probably saying, this is it. I'm never going to see this place again. And they bring him to the king. And all he's thinking about is everything that he was told about David, how cruel David is, how David's out to kill the entire house of Saul. Look what happens. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, would you read these three words with me? Ready, nice and loud? Do not fear. Can I present a little scenario? Most of us, if not all of us, heard the wrong things about God our Father before we came to know him. We heard about how cruel he was, how he puts diseases on children, how he causes accidents to happen and children lose their parents, how he puts sickness and disease on people, how he'll just take everything from you, wipe you out, and leave you poor, how he's just so mad at you because you're such a sinner and if he had the chance, he's gonna send a lightning bolt and just destroy you. These are the things that religion taught us about our God. And what happened when you came and finally began to experience the mercy and the grace and the unconditional love of God, you were shocked. And Mephibosheth cannot believe what he's hearing. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore... Not alone, don't be afraid, you're going to be okay. Not only do not fear, not only am I going to show you kindness but I'm going to restore to you all the land that your grandfather Saul had. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, this is Mephibosheth's response. I don't know about you, but it took me six months to get over the gratitude. Every time I went to church when I first got saved for six months, all I did was cry. All I did was cry. Because I could not believe the mercy, the grace, The love that God was showing this degenerate who deserved to be thrown into hell. And what's Mephibosheth's response? He bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Have we forgotten that gratitude? Have we forgotten that love? Have we been so tainted by the the mindset of entitlement in our country, in our nation, in our society, and really it's all over the world, that we forgot how crippled we were? Church, you're Mephibosheth. I'm Mephibosheth. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit coming and find us wherever we were under the rock that we were hiding, and he drew us and brought us into the presence of the king, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit who brought us there, and if it wasn't for the fact that we thank God we responded in our crippled state, in our paralyzed state, and then Jesus received us. When we said, we believe in you. We believe that you're the Son of God. We believe you died on the cross for my sins. We believe that you rose again from the dead. Jesus, be my master, be my Lord, be my Savior, be my King. And all of a sudden, it's like, this embrace. Now, you eat at my table for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. And we're lame in both feet. There is nothing that you could have done to come into this relationship. Notice this. You read the rest of the story, and I hope you do. David orders Ziba and Ziba's children and grandchildren to serve Mephibosheth and to go out and plant in the fields that Saul once earned so that Mephibosheth could have some dignity in his life. But watch this now. Mephibosheth on his own cannot do a thing to earn this relationship with David. He's crippled. He's lame in both feet. He is at the mercy of the king. You and I come into this relationship and some of us think, well, you know, yeah, you know what? You know, I deserve to have a relationship with God because, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I've done such good things for people. I deserve this. No, the truth is, we deserve to go to hell. In the true scope of things, we deserve to go to hell. But we don't go to hell because Jesus had mercy on Mephibosheth. You listening to me? And we thank God for that. And Mephibosheth now has been made royalty. Now watch this now. And I want to end with this. I'm going to wrap this up. Pastor Matt, you can come up. Watch this now. Mephibosheth is the beneficiary of a relationship that was established way before he was conceived. Mephibosheth had nothing to do with this covenant, had nothing to do with this arrangement, and church, neither did we. God the Father and God the Son came together and made a covenant that extends down to this day. And every one of us believers are in a covenant now with God the Father because we are in Christ, just like Mephibosheth benefited from this relationship because he was Jonathan's son, not because he was related to David. Are you listening to me? Listen, I'm done But this is what I want to leave you with. Do you see the kind of love we just witnessed? Do you see the kind of covenant love? Let's bring that into our relationships. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Pastor Matt. Thanks for listening to this message. We pray that you're blessed and lifted up by God's word. If this message helped you today, please consider supporting New Beginnings financially. You can just go to newbeginningsnj.org and click the giving tab. We hope to see you soon.